through 32. And, and we're going to be focusing on verses 11 to 32, but let me read the whole chapter in context because they all, they all go together. Chapter 15, the Gospel of Luke, verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, were grumbling, saying, uh, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has 100 sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. Where I have found my sheep, which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has 10 drachmas and loses one drachma, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me. For I have found the drachma which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, a man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate, living recklessly. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to, his fields to feed swine. And he was desiring to be fed with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will rise up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he rose up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, slaughter it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And summoning one of the servants, he began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not wanting to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. 
But he answered and said to his father, Look, so many years I've been serving you, and never have I neglected a command of yours. And yet never have you given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Child, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and is alive and was lost and has been found. What do you usually do when you lose something? For my family, we often lose Lego pieces that Paul will be building, some Star Wars spaceship, and then invariably a piece will fall off the table, or when it's fully built after about five minutes, pieces will go missing. And in the beginning, when we first got our Lego sets, we, we spent a good amount of time searching for the missing piece. But now we don't try so hard, we improvise, we if we, if, we can go to, if we can go without it, we do. Other lost stuff we, we, we spent a little bit more time on. A half a year ago, we, we lost our keys like two days before we were going to go to vacation. And it was, it was my car keys, and the house keys were attached, attached to it. And my wife and I, we, we scoured the house, the car. We racked our brains, tracing our steps, trying to figure out where it could be. We eventually had to change the door lock to our house and... And, and when we left to, to go on our vacation, I, 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 we just kind of put it in the Lord's hand. I may or may not have a car when I get back. And when we got back, uh, apparently my wife had given, to, given it to me, put it on the seat of the driver's side of her car, and I was sitting on it for about six months. Depending on the value of the lost item is to the degree that we look for the lost object. For Lego pieces, looking for... Uh, a piece or two lasts about two minutes. Uh, for car keys, maybe a couple of hours. But there's something that gets lost that God spends an entire lifetime, 60 or 70 years searching for. And this is how valuable this object of worth is to God. And so in today's passage, we're going to examine what God is, is willing to spend an entire lifetime looking for. Before we turn, to, we turn to our study of Galatians that we've been working through last year, I, wanna, I wanted to make sure we're, we're really clear about the, the kind of God that is behind the doctrine of justification. I, wanna, I wanted us to see clearly the kind of God who would justify sinners freely through faith alone in a down-to-earth story about two sons and a father. Yes, we can know this God of justifying grace from Galatians per se, within the theological depth of the book itself. But today's story, it makes it much easier for us. The nature of salvation that Galatians expounds upon is, is a lot more accessible in today's passage. It's more simple. It's more clear about God's gracious nature. Because that's just the nature of a story or, or a parable. Uh, stories draw you in. Uh, they captivate your attention. And, and in Scripture, they make uh, difficult theological realities more unrestricted and able to grasp. So simple that a child can understand. Today's passage is Jesus' longest story in the Gospels. 
After the introductory verse in verse 11, a man had two sons. The, the story is divided into two sections. The first section about a younger son and the second section about an older son. And the, little, the literary structure is clear because each of the two sections ends with the father saying to the younger son in verse 24, this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And you see that same uh, phrase in verse 32, the end of the second section, for this brother of yours was dead and is alive and was lost and has been found. Today's story is part of three stories in Luke chapter 15. The first story is about 100 sheep and one lost sheep being found. The second story is about 10 coins and one lost coin being found. And the third story is about two sons where one is explicitly described as being lost and then found. All three stories are connected by a single theme of things being lost and found with a celebration at the end. The first two stories, the story of the lost sheep and the, and the lost coin, they, they set up and they prepare us for the third story. In the first story, the sheep gets lost by going away. In the second story, the coin gets lost within the home. And finally, in the third story, the younger son gets lost by going away like the sheep, while the older son is like the coin who is lost within the home. Each of the three stories are interconnected and they inform each other, implying that in the third story, it isn't just one son who is lost, two sons are lost. As the numbers in the stories move from larger to smaller, from 100 sheep to 10 coins to two sons, the focus increases. In the first two stories, the sheep and the coins are both, are both roughly equal in value. And that prepares us for the last story about the loss of the most valuable of things. Not sheep, not coins, but human beings. In the first story, 1% of the sheep are lost. In the second, 10% of the coins are lost. And in the last story, 100% of the sons are lost. And before we kind of dive into the third story, it's important to see the historical setting in which Jesus is telling this story. And that historical setting is found in the first two verses of chapter 15. In verses 1 and 2, there are four sets of people, and they are separated into two groups of affinity. The first group is found in verse 1, the tax collectors and sinners. The tax collectors of the first century Israel, were considered to be the lowest kind of scumbag in society. They were Jews hired by Rome to collect taxes from their fellow Jewish brethren. And, and aside from this, this national betrayal, tax collectors were also corrupt by the way they added their own percentage to the Roman tax rate. They were the Jewish mafia of the first century. They are accompanied by sinners and this makes up the rest of the lawbreakers of Jewish society, people like drunkards and harlots. The second group of, of people listening to Jesus' story is found in verse 2, and they are the Pharisees and the scribes. Pharisees means separated ones. They were the official teachers of the law. 
They were kind of like uh, the doctors and lawyers of society. If you had a child, uh, you, you were a Jewish family, the best thing that could ever happen to you is if your children became Pharisees. The scribes were the ones who would copy Old Testament uh, 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 books from scroll to scroll, and that meant they knew the, the Bible very well too. Now what is interesting about verses 1 and 2 is how these two groups are described by Luke. Their posture toward Jesus is, is not what you might expect. The tax collectors and the sinners, these religious uh, outcasts, are described in verse 1 as uh, coming near him to listen to him. And this, is, this kind of raises your eyebrows a, a little more because uh, notice how the end of uh, chapter 14 ends. Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And immediately after, the ones who are most disposed to this condition of hearing Christ are are the worst of society, tax collectors and sinners. But in verse 2, notice how the Pharisees and scribes, notice what their posture was. They were grumbling. They were grumbling. And this grumbling brings to memory the grumbling of Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years during the time of Exodus. In other words, the garbage of society, they were more responsive to Jesus than Israel's most spiritual elite. To to listen and to grumble are completely opposite responses to someone teaching with authority. And and so already, at the beginning of chapter 15, we're we're given a clue, we're given a foretaste of this reversal that we're going to see in this third story. The Pharisees and scribes, they're grumbling. Uh, They're grumbling about the kind of people Jesus interacted with. They said in verse 2, they charged Jesus with this offense, with this crime. This man receives sinners and eats with them. The, the, the Pharisees and scribes would never dare to interact with the kind of people Jesus kept company with out of fear of ceremonial defilement. And so starting in verses 3 to the end of the chapter, Jesus responds to this charge. So the, the, the rest of chapter 15 is Jesus' response. And with that said... Let's go to the the, the third story of the parable, beginning in verse 11. And then we'll go back to the first two stories as we work our way through the third story. In verse 11, the story begins with Jesus saying, A man had two sons. Already we should realize that the common title of the parable of the prodigal son is a misnomer. This story is about three people. A man, the father, and his two sons. And I should say now that as important as the younger son and older son are, the most important person of this third story is the father. The father is the first party addressed in verse 12, and he is the last person to speak in verse 32. He is the only truly unique figure of both halves of this third story. We've both known people like the younger and older brother. We've been like the younger or older brother, but we've never truly known anyone like the father here on earth. And we cannot claim to be like the father ourselves. And so if there's a hero of this story, it is clearly clearly the father. In verse 12... 
The story begins with the younger brother shamefully uh, saying to his father, he's asking his father to give him his inheritance early. He says in verse 12, Father, give me the the share of the estate that falls to me. It it was the custom then, as it is today, for, for an inheritance to be given after your father had died. To make this sort of request was to to treat your father as if he was already dead to you. If you despised your your father and your family enough, you would be so emboldened to ask this sort of thing. And doing so would permanently sever your relationship with the family. Asking for an early inheritance would bring utter shame on your father father, your mother, and your brothers, and your sisters. You were effectually saying, I don't want to live with this family anymore. I don't want to be identified with this family anymore. To request something only available after your father's death was, in effect, writing your father's death certificate. In in first century Jewish society, this was an unforgivable offense. Sometimes Jewish families would have a mock funeral when your child did this. And the father's response to this, this, this shameful request is one of the most important parts of the story that you don't want to miss. Did the father give the son his inheritance? He did not. Look at verse 12. He divided his wealth between them. He, he split his inheritance between the younger son and the older son. And according to Deuteronomy 21, the older son would receive two-thirds of the inheritance, and the younger son would receive a third. In other words, the older son made out pretty well. He did pretty good. The father didn't have to respond the way that he did in verse 12. He had other more common options. He could have just said no. There, there was a custom that if your son, or your child did this to you, you could basically slap him, slap him in the face in the middle of the village. He could have conceivably, conceivably had his younger son put to death according, according to Deuteronomy 21. A, a stubborn and rebellious son uh, w- w- warranted this kind of death by stoning. But the father does an amazing thing, and he divides his wealth Amongst his two sons, he opts for a more extraordinary and difficult way, the one way that might just reclaim his son in the future. And so in verse 13, Jesus continues to tell the story. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate, living recklessly. You can make a movie about verse 13, right? The son's life collapses soon after his departure. He goes to a distant country. He goes to a Gentile country. He leaves the promised land. He, he dare not show his face again in Israel. And as soon as he, he arrives in this foreign land, he goes on a spending spree for things without value. It says in, in verse 13 that he squandered the estate. He wasted all of his father's wealth. And, and, and we see the kind of sinner that he, that he was. He was a reckless sinner. He was living recklessly, without abandon, without restraint, without self-control. And then in verse, verse 14, his sinful lifestyle meets Murphy's law like a head-on car crash. Nature makes 
his bad situation worse. Jesus says, now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. His, his world is collapsing. His depleted wealth and poverty is met with a severe famine in the foreign country that he's living in. And so his first response to this extremely difficult situation is to trust in himself, to pull up his bootstraps. And so he attempts to dig himself out of this, this deep hole that he's dug in, in verses 15 and 16 by finding a citizen of that country uh, to work, uh, a, a citizen, he finds a, a citizen to work for who has a status, he has a nation that he belongs to, a status and a nation this young man doesn't have. And so he is hired, in verse 15, to feed the swine. Swine are pigs. And for a Jew, you, you can't get much lower taking care of pigs. Pigs were unclean animals that Jews couldn't even touch. They were a symbol of degradation. We, we have a quote from the Talmud that says, Cursed be the man who would breed swine. And so the younger, man, the younger son, he is forced into identifying with the country in such a way that not only is his Jewish identity defiled, it's expunged from him. And he's not just feeding the pigs. He, he becomes one of the pigs in verse 16. Because he still doesn't have enough to feed himself. And Jesus says in verse 16, he was desiring to be fed with the pods that the swine were eating. He, he wanted to be one of these pigs. And, and what happened? No one, verse 16, no one was giving anything to him. He's all alone. He's in a wretched condition. He's on skid row. He's hit rock bottom. And at this point of the story, the Pharisees and scribes of verse 2, they would have been really pleased about how things turned out for this younger brother. They would be thinking and feeling, oh, that's you deserve what you get. This is the consequences of your sins. And their hearts would have been welling up with righteous satisfaction, and they would have thought, well, I, I'm, I'm so glad I'm not like this prodigal son. You see, for the self-righteous, we, we relish these kinds of outcomes for these kind of people, don't we? Toward the prodigal sons of our lives, our hearts, they pour out justice and condemnation like an overflowing river. And this is what Jesus is intending to elicit from the, from the Pharisees and the scribes. Something changes in verse 17, however. Verse 17 says that he came to himself. You find a similar phrase in 2 Timothy chapter 2 describing repentance. Paul says in 2 Timothy, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may give them repentance, leading to the full knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses. Verse 17 says, the younger son, he came to his senses. God often uses rock-bottom conditions and outcomes as a result of our sin to bring about the best conditions for repentance and faith, right? You sin, you, you, you act up, you, uh, you're, 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 you're unloving toward your wife, and and, and, and you see your relationship falling apart, and you, you see situations at work getting worse, and, and it wakes you up. 
And you realize, I need to change something because my life is collapsing. And God providentially does these sorts of things to, to get our attention. And so that's what's happening to the son. He, he realizes just how far he has fallen in this verse. And even though he was the, the son of a wealthy father, he recognized he remembered that his father's hired hands and his father's slaves and, and workers, they were in much better shape than he was. Verse 17, he came to himself and he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. He realized that his, his attempt to live carelessly without any constraints has led to utter failure. It has led to him becoming less than a human being. And the, the first consequence of his repentant, repentant heart is clarity of thought. He has an honest self-appraisal of his condition. And he says in verse 17, at the end of verse 17, I am dying here with hunger. The word for dying is, in the Greek is apulamai. It means to perish, and it's used, it's used seven other times in Luke chapter 15, all translated lost. So every time you see the word lost, it's that same word the translators uh, translate dying here in verse 17. He's saying, I, I am in the, in the present middle uh, indicative, I am in the, in the state of being lost, the state of lostness. It's to be, to be lost from the Father is to die. It, it is to perish. And, and we know this kind of lostness. We, we, we feel the kind of pain and sorrow when we lose something. I remember in high school years ago, uh, actually I was in seventh grade middle school, and my mother, the, 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 uh, I, li- I lived in Korea, an international school, and the 88 Olympics uh, was in Korea, and my my mother was working in uh, the athlete's village as a translator, and so she, we had a pass, and, and uh, I saw a lot of famous uh, athletes, and so uh, I said, Mom, I, I want to take pictures of all these athletes I, I, I meet. Can I borrow your camera? And her camera was like five. It was really expensive. And uh, my mother said, uh, don't lose it. <laughs> don't lose it. And I said, I'm not going to lose it. Trust me, Mom. She gave me this $500 uh, camera. I took all these pictures, and... Uh, Took pictures of real, some really famous people. And I got home. I didn't have a camera. I left it in the, in the taxi. The taxi that took me home. And, my, and I just, I was so hurt. I was so hurt because it was so expensive. And my, my mother was really gracious about it. And I, and I cried. I cried. Seventh grader, I just cried because I lost this, uh, this phone. But that's not the worst uh, experience of me losing something. A couple of years ago, I was, a, I was a, in D.C. And, and big, in this large room, about 1,000 people. It was the Chinese Lunar New Year, and, and there was all these activities for kids, and, and it was a big room. Uh, and uh, we, lost, we lost my second son. Like We turned around, and Joel was gone. And my wife said, hey, Joel's gone. And I, I was just like... <laughs> You know, there's a thousand people here. And I walked around, and I was like in a state of shock, you know? You're like, Joel, Joel. And I was, 
I was tempted to just scream at the top of my lungs. Like, help me! I lost my son! Would somebody help me? And uh, I don't know why I didn't do it. I was just, just wandering. And, and about 15 minutes later, my, my wife called me. I found him. He's with the security guard. And so some uh, a kind parent took uh, my, my boy. Um, but there's, you know, that's not the worst loss I've, I've experienced or kind of was close to. I think the worst loss that I that came across was in my early 20s. I was uh, doing some martial arts, and, and the, the head of the, the, the studio was a famous martial artist, right? And he had this reputation of being, a, like, undefeated, 400 fights, and he was a famous guy, if I mentioned his name to you. And I went to a tournament, and, and his son, about 12 or 13, he was in the tournament. Now, I, I thought to myself, like, that's a lot of pressure, right? Like, your, your father has never lost a fight, supposedly, sure, uh, in his entire life, and you're in this tournament, and, and his son lost. And everybody was talking. And then he finally, he, he did this other consolation turn, uh, uh, tourney, and he, and he eventually won the tournament. And years ago, I, I read, because he was kind of, uh, they were kind of famous, that his son had died. Um, when he became 18, his son moved to New York City to be a model, and he got addicted to drugs, and then he... Uh, he, he, they, they, he, he died of a drug overdose in a hotel room with no, no identification. And um, they, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of these types of situations where they, 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 there's these dead bodies and they don't know who they are. And so they put him in a morgue. And so his father was looking for him. And he asked a friend to look around. And so his, so his friend looked around in hospitals and morgues. And, and months later, he found the dead body of his son, and, and the, the friend was able to recognize a tattoo on his arm that said, best father in the world, and it was the name of his father. That's probably the worst kind of state of being lost that I can imagine that I've been remotely close to, but here in the story, there is even a worse kind of state of being lost. And, and that lostness is when you're running away from God. Like those the stories, those personal stories I, I, I told you pale in comparison to your neighbors, our neighbors across the street who are running away from God. The worst kind of lostness is when you die and the Father, He doesn't know you. According to verse 17, the only way to be found is to admit what his son says in verse 17. I am dying. I am lost. See, you can only be found when you admit that you're lost. That's the first step. And so he says in verse 18, I will rise up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. The son knows he's forfeited every right to be a part of the family again. He has forfeited his inheritance. He he asserts no rights of his own. He makes no claims. 
He will put himself at his Father's mercy with no excuses. He has no legitimate ground to be treated like his son. And in the end, he, 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 says, he says something. He says, make me as one of your hired men. He's ready to work. He's, he's ready to earn back his Father's favor. He's, he says at the end of verse 19, in other words, I'm ready to pay off my debts. I'm ready to pay back what I owe. And after so many years, the son thought, yeah, I can, I can buy my way back into the family. I can earn. After some years, I, I save up the money and I'll give back what I lost, what I squandered from my father's inheritance. And he doesn't expect to be reinstated as a member of the family. He just wants to be a slave, a hired hand. And, and the Pharisees are listening to this and they're saying, yep, that's the way you do it. You mess up to that degree, you need to spend years and years earning your way back into the family. And so they would have commended the response at the end of verse 19. And then in verse 20, we're introduced to the Father. And the Father obviously represents God. And for those of us who already know this story, his reaction is not a, very, it's not a surprise to us, but to the initial hearers of the story... The tax collectors, the sinners, the Pharisees, the scribes, they would have been shocked by the reaction. You, you know, in a, in a legalistic, works-based righteousness system, what the Father does is counterintuitive, to say the least. In an honor-shame culture, the, the, his, his actions that we see in these verses and following, they're despicable. And, 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 and this part of the story, to the original audience, they, it would have made them... Very uncomfortable, and this is the intention of Jesus. He, he reels them in. He, he says, yeah. And the Pharisees are like, yeah, that's right. He deserves all that he got. And here Jesus turns a corner. And now he wants to make his audience really, really uncomfortable inside. The son has renounced the family. He publicly shamed his father. He has squandered, squandered away all of, his, all of his father's inheritance. How does the father respond to the prodigal son? Look at verse 20. So the son rose up. He came to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming home. And this suggests that the father had on a regular basis been peering across the horizon. He would wake, every, wake up every morning and he would look and he, he would say to himself, maybe this, maybe this is the day my son might come home to me. And then was verse 20, he says, the father saw him and he ran to him. And in the first century, Middle Eastern fathers, they don't run. Older men, they don't run. They would, they would wear long cloaks. In order to run, you would have to lift up your cloak and show your legs, and you would kind of run like this. It would be a, a shameful sight for a wealthy landowner. But he runs. What does the father feel when he sees his son? It's not anger. Verse 20 says he felt compassion. And he embraced him. And he kissed him. And this is what a, a father who loves his children does. And then in verse 21, the, the son said to him, Father, 
I have sinned against heaven and, and, and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And, and in verse 21, he says everything that he planned to say in verses 18 and 19, except for one part. What part didn't he say? The last part of verse 19. Make me as one of your hired men. Before he gets to finish this last rehearsed part, the father interrupts him in verse 22. The father says to his slaves, quickly. His father, the weight must have felt like an entire lifetime. So he needs to, his father needs to make up for lost time. He doesn't need to say anything to the son. His actions back in verse 20 spoke louder than words. Now what the father does in verse 20, it explains why he interrupted his son when he did. The father said to his slaves, bring out the best robe, put it on him. This was the robe of the highest ranking member of the family. It was the father's own robe. Then he said, put a ring on his hand. And the ring had the family seal on it. And with the ring, you'd be authorized to represent your family in official matters. And then he said, in verse 20, put sandals on his feet. Then, if you were a slave or if you were a hired worker, you would walk around barefoot. Only landowners, only family members would, would, would wear sandals. This is, the, this is a changing of status. And all of this is a public pronouncement of restored sonship. All of this said, you're not going to be my slave. You're not going to be my hired hand. You're going to be my son. This is the question. What did the son do to, re- to, 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 to deserve this restored status as a son? Nothing. No works. No paying off his debts. The younger son just came to his father with the tiny speck of faith that his father might give him some bread. And what the son received was far more than he could possibly expect. And the the point here is that, that not every sinner is as bad as the prodigal son But what it does mean is that if the prodigal son can be forgiven, as bad as he was, so can everybody here. The son, back in verse verse 17, he, he he said to himself, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? I, I just want a little bread. And look at the father, what he says in verse 23. Bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. If you were a Jewish family, they didn't eat very much meat, but you would have many cattle, and then you had one cattle that you would, you would feed. He'd be the fattened calf. And he would be the Thanksgiving calf. He would be the Christmas calf. For the best, most special occasions. 
and he, and he gave it to his son who was expecting bread. The son deserved to die according to the law, but instead gets the best robe and the finest beast. Not because he did anything. It was all because of the kind of father that he had. We don't know a father like this in the world. These kinds of fathers, they don't exist. Jesus, you're making this, this character up. No, Jesus was describing his own father. Why did they celebrate in verse 24? What does the celebration represent? Well, it's the same thing that it represented in the first two parables of chapter 15. It represents a celebration in heaven whenever one sinner repents. Go back to verses 6 and 7. After the man had found the sheep, he calls together his friends in verse 6, and he says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. What is this? What does this symbolize? Verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The celebration of the Father represents the same thing that that the celebration the woman had when she found the lost coin. Verse 9, Rejoice with me, for I have found the drachma which I had lost. What does that symbolize? In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angel of God over one sinner who repents. Why is there joy for the angels? Because they are standing in the presence of God who is filled with joy. Jesus, in telling these three stories, remember, he is responding to the charge. This man receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus tells these Pharisees and scribes why he did this, why he does this. Because when he eats with them and he turns back just one sinner to the Father, all of heaven rejoices. There's this, the greatest joy in heaven is when sinners turn and trust in the gospel because they see the Father's joy. Nothing pleases our heavenly Father more Verse 24, I I love the way it ends. It says, they began to celebrate. And we get the the impression that this is going to be a very long party. See, one of the reasons we go to church on Sunday, brothers and sisters, is not so that, is not just that, that we can get filled up, that we can have this personal satisfaction, we, we go to church on Sunday because we're celebrating each other's salvation. We're having a party. We're celebrating that God has found the person next to you and the person in front of you and the, and the person behind you. Part of Sunday morning is this mutual celebration of each other's salvation. It's the Father's party. All of heaven is rejoicing, and our Sunday worship is a mirror of that heavenly party. Where else throughout your week are you surrounded by those God has saved? See, during the week, as you interact with your unbelieving friends and your neighbors and friends, there should be compassion. But on Sunday morning, there should be 
joy. Because all around us, we see lost sheep. All around us, there are missing coins recovered. There are prodigal sons and daughters. And just coming to church, you, you could be like, you know, as sick as a dog, and you can be super tired, and I'm saying you can't skip church because of those things, but I'm saying is, is if you come and you think you're not going to get anything out of it, just being reminded that there's a, there's a party in heaven going on because all these lost souls should encourage you. Now we move to the second part of the story. The son enters the story. Verse 25, his oldest son was in the field. Jesus says, and when he came and approached the house, other translations have it a draw near, and that's a better translation. And the same Greek, Greek word was used in verse 1, describing sinners coming near to Jesus in verse 1. It's the, you see the same word in verse 13. Uh, the younger son went on a distant journey in verse 13. In verse 20, it's the same word when the father saw the younger son while he was still a long way off. And so... Uh, uh, Distance and proximity are key ideas in the story. The younger son has, has been far away, and now it says in verse 25, the older son is close. And the older son, he asks the servant what the party is about, and the servant tells him in verse 27. And, and in verse 28, you, you get a kind of a, a surprising response. He's pretty emotional. Jesus says that, verse 28, he became angry. And then you compare his anger with his, with his father's compassion in verse 20, and you kind of wonder, what's going on with the brother? You, you, you would think the older brother would be a little happier that, that his brother, his lost brother, had returned. You'd think he'd be more understanding. And, and, and we already know he's received two-thirds of the estate. Why is he so angry? Well, we find out, verse 29, the father comes out at the end of verse 28, and he began pleading with him. And in verse 29, the first word the son doesn't say to his father tells us why he's so angry. What does he say? To, what's the first word he uses in verse 29? He says, look. Look, now compare his address with the younger brother's address. The younger brother has always acknowledged the father as his father. Look at verse 12. The younger of them said to his father, Father. Then in verse 18, I will, grow, I will rise up and go to my father and will say to him, Father. Look at verse 21. And the son said to him, Father. See, the younger brother's address highlights what the older brother doesn't say. And even though the older brother was supposedly, he was the model son, the absence of one word shows that even though he was physically close to the father, his heart was a million miles away. It says in verse 29, Look! So many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command. 
And you've never even given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. This statement, I have been serving, is really the the word for I've been your slave. If you have an NIV translation, the NIV really gets it right when it translates the words in verse, uh, uh, verse 29. When it translates, I've been serving you this way, I've been slaving for you. And we, we get the mindset of the, the older son. Even though he had the status of a son, he thinks of himself as a slave. Even though he has this great inheritance as the, as the firstborn at his disposal, he speaks as if he's been a slave all of his life. And his attitude toward his father is, listen, you owe me. I've worked for you. You... You're in my debt. You deserve better. I deserve better than this. You think the father gave him a goat before? Sure, of course he did. There's a banquet with the fattened calf. And the father is saying, come on in. And what what does the older son want? He says, I want a young goat so that I might celebrate with who? With who? With my friends. I want a party. I don't want you there. I don't want you there. And then in verse 30, the, the, younger, the older brother says, but when this son of yours came, what's wrong with that statement? It's his brother. He won't call his father, father. He won't call his brother, brother. And now we learn why this older son is so angry. He was never part of the family. He never had a relationship with his father. He says, again in verse 29, Never have I neglected a command of yours. Really? You never loved your dad. That's a pretty big one. And that what this teaches us is that you can be physically close to God's family, but have a heart that is a million miles away from him. You can come to church every Sunday and never come into the presence of God. You can sing songs with God's people every Sunday, but never worship God from your heart. You can serve your father diligently and faithful. And never want to be with him. You can pray to God every day and ask for everything in the world without ever asking for him. But the best part is verses 31 and 32. And we learn that the Father's love extends to all kinds of sinners. Prodigal sinners, yes but also self-righteous sinners, also uh, Pharisees and, and scribes. And his, and his answer in verse 31 is, is really interesting. He said to his older son, Child, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. And he directly counters his son's word in verse 29, when, he, when, when his, son, his older son said, never, never have you given me this. The father says, you're wrong. All of it was always yours. This is, 
the, the Father's answer in verse 31 is given in the most absolute and unconditional way possible. And this unconditional language you see in verse 31 is to convey the truth that any sinner, any sinner, prodigal or Pharisee, can join the party. You can wear the robe. You can put on the ring. You can wear the sandals. You have access to all of this. But you can't have it as a slave working for your master. You can only have all that the Father has by trusting Him as your Father. And the key word in verse 31 is is child. 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 It's a different word that that we saw for the word son throughout the story. Some translations miss that. They put son instead of child. But Jesus intentionally changes the word to highlight it. To emphasize in the most tender and endearing way that you don't work for an inheritance. You don't deserve an inheritance. You can't pay back somebody for an inheritance. You can only receive an inheritance as a child who trusts and loves his father. John Piper says about this verse that when Jesus got to the end of the story, he was probably, quote, looking over the head of sinners and staring the hardened Pharisee right in the face and saying on behalf of God Almighty, all that is mine is yours. As an inheritance for a son, not a wage for a slave, All that that is mine is yours if you will come in with the sinners. If you will stop relating to me as a slave. If you will be satisfied with all that I am for you as a father. If you will receive grace and let it flow through you to your brother. End quote. Father gets the last word in the story. He says, but we, son, we, we had to celebrate and rejoice. There was no choice. No choice. When you come here Sunday morning, you have no choice but to celebrate and rejoice. You have to do it. You have to do it. For this brother of yours was dead and is alive and was lost and has been found. This is where our joy must reside in. The same joy as the Father. And I wanted to begin this new year with this story to remind us in the coming months about the heart of the Father, the the heart that we should have reaching the lost. I wanted to begin this year with this story to remind us about the greatness of our salvation and the joy that it should give you, knowing that there was no no buyer's remorse when God saved you. There's no regrets when God saves you. There's not like, oh man, here we go again. Did I really make the right choice? No, there's this eternal party. They began to celebrate, verse 24. When he saved you, heaven began to celebrate. And they still, and all of heaven still celebrates now. And and I wanted to begin this new year with this story to remind us that Jesus paid it all. We're no longer slaves trying to earn our freedom There's none of this, end of verse 19, there's none of this 
Father, make me as one of your hired men. Make me just, just a little bread. Don't ask for bread from God. Ask for the fattened calf. You were once dead and now are alive. You were once lost but now have been found. And this means we have to celebrate that we have a Father who has found us when we were lost. Heavenly Father, this is us. We are in this story. Whether we recognize it or not, we were either with the tax collectors and sinners, or or we were with the Pharisees and the scribes, or or we, we were there in between those two groups. We were this lost. Whether we remember it or not, this is how Far away we were from the Father. And yet, like a shepherd, you searched us out. One sheep. Like a lost coin, you desperately searched the house to find us. And when you found us, and and when we turned to you, you gave us the best robe, the shiniest ring, the sandals of family, and you began to celebrate. Oh, Father, would you help us celebrate with you? Give us the joy of our salvation. Would it be rich and overflowing? Give us the joy of, of, of our brothers and sisters' salvation. And Father, Give us the compassion and motivation that we would take the gospel to the lost that we still know are out there. And that's what we ask for this year. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.